I think each of my children has gone through a stage, maybe age three or four, I'm not sure, when the concept of tomorrow was perplexing to them. I mean, even frustrating to them. Because tomorrow never came. It was never tomorrow. It was always today. I remember one of the kids asking, When is it tomorrow? And I'd say, tomorrow. But then when the day came, the name changed, didn't it? It's not tomorrow, it's today. So it seems like this mysterious thing. It's always today. Well, Psalm 95, right in the middle of it, has this wonderfully mysterious word, today. And it may seem like a needless word, like a bonus word. Today you should do this. Maybe it's just part of the poetry of it. Maybe if you took it out, it wouldn't change much at all. Instead, though, it's a powerful and rich and important word right there toward the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice. It implies urgency. It's today. You must hear his voice today. You must keep with him today. It also implies constancy. Because it's always today. Today, hear his voice. Today, praise him. Psalm 95 invites us today to come. Today, to hear him. Today, to praise him. So notice, verse 1 and verse 6 both begin with this. Oh, come. We have come. We've come this morning. We've come to meet with him. We've come as a church to meet together. We can come all through the week to him individually and as families or sometimes in community groups. We come. So let's come to God's word. Let's open this. Psalm 95 and read all of it together. It says this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they've not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You might have noticed that there are basically two halves to Psalm 95. You might have noticed that there's a turn right at that today, the end of verse 7. Some have even thought that these were originally two different psalms and someone sort of carelessly put them together into one because you can tell they're so different. Well, we'll see the relationship between the two halves later on. I think they do indeed go together. But they are different. One half strikes a joyful note of invitation. The second half, though, gives a warning. So we'll see that. If you're following along on the sermon notes page, on the back of your bulletin, we'll look at both halves of Psalm 92, and then we'll turn for a third point to the New Testament to see something else. The first is an invitation, as I said, a plea to give God his due praise. Verses 1 to 7. To give God what is due him in worship. You know, worship, the English word, comes from an old English word, worth-ship. Worship is ascribing worth. It's sizing up. It's assessing. It's appraisal. That's where it begins. Worship begins with 
knowing the worth of the thing that will eventually get praise. So it's an appraisal of God, appraisal of his worth, an appraisal of who he is, an appraisal of what he does. And regardless of what kind of job you have, you're an appraiser. We're all appraisers. We all assess in general, not just with God. With God, some of us are better than others. Some of us are more knowledgeable, more accurate, more precise, more familiar, more experienced than others at appraising God, assessing God. Not so much judging whether he's good or bad. Hopefully we're talking about the category of God's goodness. We're we're working within that realm as we discuss this. And what we're saying is instead that We should be people who know about this part of God and that part of God. And of course, we can't know the depths. Drew quoted from Romans 11 earlier. Who's known the mind of the Lord? No, we can't know his mind. We don't know all of his ways. He's infinite. But we are to grow, getting more accurate and more knowledgeable in our appraisal of him. Think about it this way. We put a price tag on everything. And again, not just God, not just his gifts, not just his ways. We put a price tag on everything in life. And I don't mean a financial price tag, just value. We assign value to everything, a relationship, a a car, a job, a a feeling, a movie, a nap. I don't know if they still do this in the grocery store, but I remember the day when You'd see the clerk in the grocery store going around, uh, and he had this little plastic gun, and he'd put price tags on things, right? You'd go, just go down the aisle. We do that all day long. Every day, we can't stop doing it. We put price tags on things. We say, it has that much value. I feel this much good about that or bad about this. We do the same with God as well, which tells us that we are all worshipers. Some of us worship the living and true God, and some of us don't. Some of us worship the true and living God and get distracted, and we assign value, too much value to other things. Good things become God-like things. The Bible calls those idols. There's no question that we are all worshipers. We all praise. We all are appraisers with price tag guns. What do we value in God. Well, we'll get to that in a little bit, but first let's talk about what praise is, what worship is. Like so many psalms, it describes it in several different ways. Verse 1 talks about it being singing. Let us sing to the Lord. It says make a joyful noise, two times in fact, one in verse 1 and one in verse 2. A joyful noise. Noise here means loud. Joyful means happy. Now, that's not the only way that the Bible talks about worship. There's a way to worship God in silence. There's a way to worship God even in the midst of sorrow. But so often the Bible describes praise in loud terms and in happy terms. Exuberance, expressed exuberantly. And it says that it's to him. It's not just joyful noise, happy music, like that's an end in itself, or the goal is merely our experience or our feelings. It's to him. In that sense, it's for him. It's to the rock of our salvation. It says in verse 1, which I think is one way of describing him. That should remind us that praise describes him. It calls him a rock. It says he's our salvation. It's acknowledging, verse 2 says, that we're coming into his presence. Come into his presence. Literally, before his face. Almost a scary thing. I mean, one, because God doesn't have a face. And two, because no man can see my glory and live. Even the angels cover their face with their wings as they dwell in God's presence in his throne room. 
No man can see him, and yet here it says, come before his very face. Something intimate, something awe-striking. And to come before his presence with thanksgiving, specifically in verse 2, recounting what he's done, recounting his goodness. Or skip down to verse 6 and look at the way praise is described there. Oh, come, let us worship. Worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Now, our English word worship is sort of a general word, right? There are different ways to worship. We're seeing that in this psalm. You can see it in other parts of the Bible. The Hebrew word for worship, when you look down and see worship in verse 6, the Hebrew word for that literally means bow. Now, it could sometimes mean literal bowing, and sometimes it could mean something more figurative, more general, like worship in our English language. But notice that it's stacked with these other bowing terms. Worship equals bow, so it could read like this. Oh, come, let us bow and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Stacking them up like that means let us get low and lower. He is high and lifted up. We are not. Part of his glory is his difference. He's not different than us in every single way. We're made in his image. There are ways in which we're like him. There are ways in which we're supposed to grow in being like him. But there are ways in which he is separate, different, and even far away, even though the Bible elsewhere talks about him being near and and even coming into his presence and being before his face. Before his face, give thanks and get low. I think when the Bible talks about bowing, It's talking about it both, especially in the Old Testament, in literal terms, but in not just literal terms. You could also think of it in terms of uh, an inner bowing. You you might feel guilty at times to sing a song here on a Sunday morning, and it talks about bowing. You think, I'm not bowing. I don't see anyone bowing. We're lying right now. No, there's a way to bow in your heart and in your, even maybe a bit of bowing in your outward appearance. Um it would just get practically clumsy for us to all prostrate ourselves on the floor every time we sang a kind of bowing song or a kneeling song, right? So it's okay to stand. It's okay to, to express our heart in smaller ways than what we're singing. And it's also, also okay to bow down and to get low and to at times have moments of being face down. This isn't sort of cutesy kneeling like you may have done in one of those churches that have fold-down pads. This is getting flat. This is bowing more like what you might see a Muslim do when they bow in prayer. That's how Jewish folks would have thought of worship and bowing in the time of Psalm 95. But notice there's a contrast here. Verse 1 began with all this joyful stuff, right? Joyful noise, sing! And then verse 6 talks about bow and bow lower and get real low. So there's to be rejoicing and reverence. There's to be gladness in his worship and gravity. His praise is to be full of wonder and weight. It should make us happy and humble. It should make us want to get loud and to get low. That's our God. He's near and he's big. This is also individual and corporate. It says, let us. Three times. Three times it puts them together in couples, though. Verse 1, let us sing, let us make a joyful noise. Then verse 2, two more, let us's. However you say that. Verse 6 again, two more, let us's. Let us, it's corporate. You see that? It's us, it's not me. Let me, it's not you individually. Let that one person. Let us. But of course, the us isn't just this 
amorphous group somewhere. These are people like you, like me. It's saying get together and do this together. Let us individually, but together, do this. We need to come together. The Bible talks about this. The Psalms assume this. Some of the Psalms are individual and private. It's me and God in the prayer closet with my prayer journal and my Bible. But most of the Psalms assume that this is a songbook for God's people to be sung together with God's people. Now, over the next two to three weeks, I want to do sort of a mini-series on praise in general in the book of Psalms. That'll allow us to, to not be limited to one psalm. There's some things I want to show you over two weeks, maybe three weeks, about praise in the Psalms that I think is very important for us to keep in mind for our corporate worship even today. So two to three weeks of that coming up, and uh, we'll take the principles that we see in the Psalms about it that should shape our corporate worship. So keep that in mind. Be planning on that, excited for it, even praying for it if you would. Now this week, though, I want to say something to the men. It's Father's Day. With this two to three weeks coming up on praise, I, I want to give you men an assignment to have a, a catcher's mitt in your mind and your heart ready for these next two to three weeks especially that you would receive. These, of course, all of God's people need to think through praise in the Psalms and how praise happens here in corporate worship as a church. Women, little kids, and men all need to hear that. But men, I, I want you to come with a catcher's mitt ready to receive it. I have a dream. I have a dream of a church full of strong men. Not strong in muscles necessarily, but strong in conviction. Strong in the word. Strong in their leadership leading out to, to come. Men, oh, come. Men leading out in singing. Yeah, singing should be for everyone. But, you know, I, if we had a, a female meter and a male meter going on during our singing, I, I think probably the ladies would outdo us, men. God gave you a big, booming voice as an instrument. Use it. Men. We need men, and we'll weave that in here and there in upcoming weeks as we think about praise. I don't want to give too much away about praise from Psalm 95. I'm holding some back so that we have things to say in upcoming weeks about praise. But, but notice that this psalm, like others, gives, gives us a why to praise. We saw that in Psalm 92 a few weeks ago. And I said then that almost all psalms give us a why for praise. They don't just say, praise him. And then that's it. No, most often they do this. Praise him, you praise him, all of creation praise him for, and then it goes on to give reasons, for he's done this, for he is this. They both incite and excite when they give us these reasons. Now if you think about it, reasons for praise and praise itself are inseparable because praise by its very nature is descriptive. What the Psalms do is they call on others, inviting and motivating to others to praise him by showing who he is, by describing what he's done. And in that description of who he is and what he's done, oftentimes it is itself praise. It got horizontal. Let us, let us, let us. And then the why for let us do this or that becomes its own kind of descriptive praise. Praise must be descriptive. Think about affection in marriage. Simplicity is good, 
but it can only go so far. It can only last so long. Maybe you're a, a kind of Frankenstein sort of um, affection communicator to your wife, man. Uh, there was one word in Frankenstein. I don't remember which one it was, but you know, Frankenstein's learning language and concepts and things. And you know, I think it's nice. He just kept saying nice. Maybe it was pretty or something. I don't know what it was, but you know, Frankenstein's fixated on this thing, this concept, and he just kept saying the one word, nice. And sometimes men do that with their wives. Pretty, pretty. That's it. You don't have any other. Like you, you go to the, the box of words to pull another one out, and you're like, hammer. I don't know. That, I can't say she's a hammer. So what do I got? Pretty. You know, you just go back to Frankenstein again. Okay? So simplicity is good. It's good to, it's good to be honest, right? Not all of us have gone up to 100 IQ and that kind of thing. Uh, but we need with our wives to describe things about them that we like. We need to give more than just pretty and thanks and good food. <laughs> In the same way. We describe our God. We put contours and edges on who he is. And and that is both motivation and invitation to others. It's horizontal. And it is itself praise, and so it's vertical. We praise him for who he is. And look at what verse 3 says. He's a great God. He's a great king above all gods. As if there was any other God. Uh, there are gods out there. There, are, People think that there are gods out there. But he says that he's the Lord and there is none besides him. And so he's condescending to our understanding of, you know, unbelief and in our concept of multiple gods. God's communicating himself in an ancient Near East culture where most of the nations around believed in many gods and they had them ranked and this one was higher than this one and this one could beat this one but this one could beat this one at this thing and not that thing. And God's saying, I'm a great God. I'm a great king. I am in fact the God. Verse 4 it says, In his hand are the depths of the earth. The ocean, I think, tops out at the bottom at 32,000 feet. Six miles down. In his hand. Oh, get this. He's so big, he doesn't even have a hand. Hand things are not as cool and big and powerful and unlimited as our infinite, bodiless God. He's a spirit. He's everywhere. He's, he's God. He's at the top of the mountain. Mount Everest. At 29,000 feet up. He's the creator. Verse 5 just tells us. The sea is his. For he made it. There's such a thing called international waters. That's you know, supposedly not owned by anyone. It's not part of a country. He owns it. It's his. He made it. He made you. He made me. He's our maker, it says. Which means we owe him. It means we are his. He made us for himself. But before that gets too threatening, verse 7 says he's our God. He's not just the God and it's impersonal. He's our God. In fact, even more, he's our shepherd. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack anything, David said. He lays me down by still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear. He's with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. We are little sheep in an enormous shepherd's 
hand. So this is personal. Praise is to him. Praise is about him. Praise is built upon and expressing knowing him. It is in covenant with him. It is part of communion with him. It is in his presence. It is sort of like in his face. In short, he is the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, God. He's the God who names himself, I am. He is. He just is. He always is. These are reasons why we praise him. And there's actually another one here. Another reason why we should praise him is the second half of Psalm 95. It's because he demands our praise. Because he's God, he can. Because he's Yahweh, he can. He's the judge and he judges sin. And the very nature of sin, we could say, is unworship. If worship's what we're made for and worship is what we're called to do and worship is what he desires of us, then we could say unworship is sin. Sin is another God. He's the judge. He will not be domesticated. And so, Psalm 95, the beginning, invites, but it also warns. There's a warning. The warning to hear and heed the invitation. Or else. It really does put it in or else terms. It's the second thing in your notes. Warning. Hear and heed the invitation. Or else. Verses 7 through 11, the second half, form an inverse of the invitation. It's not contrary to the invitation, but it is the other side of the coin. And it gives us this classic Old Testament example of a people who didn't hear and heed the invitation to give God his due praise. They appraised him wrongly, even though they had much information. You know the generation I'm talking about? The one in the wilderness, wandering. Stories of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Remember we talked about that group of people from Psalm 78, a history psalm. What's it do? It looks back to history and tells a story. And it says, tell your kids about these stories. And it camps out on one story, basically. The long version of the story is what you find in Exodus to Deuteronomy. It gives about 10 or 12 different vignettes of that big story in Psalm 78. And Paul does something similar in 1 Corinthians 10, pointing back to the same infamous people. 105 does it, Psalm 105. Psalm 106 does it. And here, Psalm 95 does it too. This, we could say this poor generation, but God doesn't think this poor generation. He doesn't feel bad for them. We could kind of look back and say, oh man, These guys really get picked on. You know, we like to make jokes about Peter putting his foot in his mouth and that kind of thing. But these guys, I mean, these are just, they just keep being the classic example of what not to do. For a reason. Here's what it says in Psalm 95, verse 7. They heard his voice. They had heard his voice. The end of verse 9, they had seen God's work. But, and you know this if you were here for Psalm 78 or 1 Corinthians 10. Look at verse 8 of Psalm 95. They hardened their hearts. Same description used to Pharaoh, remember? Hardened his heart. Here God is the redeemer, the rescuer, the freer, the miracle worker. He sets them free. He he goes up against Pharaoh and ten times over shows that he's the Lord and there's none besides him. Pharaoh hardened his heart and hardened his heart. And here, now the people are not following Yahweh God, their freer, rescuer, redeemer, miracle worker, provider, sustainer, following Pharaoh. They put him to the test, it says in verse 9. 
God says, they put me to the proof. At Meribah and at Massa. Now these are places. Some translations don't have Meribah or Massa. They have testing used again. The reason is that that's what the Hebrew word really means. But they were named these things because that's where the testing happened. They both refer to the two times that God provided water from a rock in the middle of the desert for two million people. Imagine that, two million people, you get out in the desert. And I don't, don't think like west side, okay? I don't mean like you could walk eventually and get some water. They're out in the desert, Sahara-like. They're out there, there's no water. What are we going to do? They think they're going to die. As I pictured this before, you know, God providing this rock, Moses striking it, and then water gushing out. I, I pictured, you know, sort of a medium-sized little boulder, I guess, and, and then a, like a drinking fountain coming out. And then I found out there are two million people out there. Two million people at a drinking fountain. You hear a lot of, save some for the fish. Remember that one? No, God provided a gush, a stream, a big pool, something massive. And they're called, these places, Massa and Meribah, named by Moses. Exodus 17, 7 says, Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? He named those places testing and quarreling in English, except he gave them Hebrew words. That's why they're called Massa and Meribah. There are people, though, who go astray in their hearts. Verse 10 says of Psalm 95, there are people really who haven't known my ways, and hence God says that he loathed that generation. Loathed. We probably wouldn't think to put that strong of a term on it. We would want to guard God's reputation a little bit more, wouldn't we? We'd want to make him look a little more just or nice or something. Take an edge off it. Loathed him? You were that ticked? You loathed him? You went to like an old word? No one says loathe anymore, right? Except the British. We'll put it in these terms. He swore in his wrath. He made an oath with himself when he was mad. You shouldn't do that. Don't make any promises when you're mad. But God is God. He's holy. And his wrath is holy. It's right. He made a covenant with himself in his wrath that they wouldn't enter his rest. And look down, that's how the psalm ends. A weird ending for a psalm. Weird in that it's unusual, but it's powerful, isn't it? It just ends with, they died out there. They didn't enter his rest, which means his land. That's the whole point of them traveling to the wilderness, you'll remember, is eventually to get to a land and that is going to be a land of rest because it's flowing with milk and honey already. You don't have to like, start from zero with crops. And it's also a land of God's presence. That's why it says it's my rest. They won't enter into my rest or rest with me. Now this is hinting at another Old Testament story of doubt and testing. Would you bear with me flipping back to one more Moses story as we use the Psalms as a springboard? Look at Numbers 13 with me. This is one we haven't looked at before. We've looked at others. Numbers 13, though, is the first place where God said, you won't enter the promised land. We, we already saw that with Moses. Moses did something in Numbers 20, and he's told, you won't enter the promised land. We've already seen that Massa and Meribah were the people complained when God got them to a certain place and there wasn't water there. They grumbled, they doubted, they tested him, they pushed the finger to his chest. 
Well, here's another one of those stories. It's a story of getting right to the land and then sending in some spies to spy out the land. I mean, you're going to have to go and there's a conquest coming. That's the book of Joshua. And if you're smart with war, you'll send some spies in, figure out what the enemy's like before you go in. Now, God's promised all this. God's said he's going to pave the way. And so the spies come back in verse 25 of Numbers 14. I'm sorry, 13. Numbers 13. We won't read 25, but we will start reading in verse 30. Now, the people have already been concerned that the people, that these spies came back and were faithless, scared, didn't want to do it. Caleb quieted the people, verse 30, before Moses and said, Let us go up once and occupy the land. For we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him, the other spies, said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we've gone to spy is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And we're like grasshoppers. They're really big. Chapter 14, verse 1, get this. All the people, all two million, raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron again. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we would die that we had died in the land of Egypt? We wish that. We wish that we had died in this wilderness right now rather than have to go through and fight these giants, these big guys in the land, this mighty army. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt, back to slavery? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Man, and you realize that's not just a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. When they say choose a leader and go back to Egypt, it's also a rebellion against the Lord. The Lord's the one who led them out of Egypt, not Moses. So now skip down to verse 8. Here's what Joshua and Caleb say. If the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into the land. He'll give us the land, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. They're there for the picking. God will make this easy for us. Their protections removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And Joshua and Caleb would have died right there, except the glory of the Lord just showed up, and they put down their stones real fast. Now look at verse 21. Here's the end of it, end of the story. But truly as I live, the Lord says, an oath, a promise, a covenant. And as all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord, so I promise none of the men who have seen my glory, my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. God loathed that generation. They died in the wilderness as he promised. A generation later, the people went in. Now that's a a lesson that needs repeating, and that's why it's repeated so many times in the Old Testament. It's an issue, a, a warning that needs reissuing, and it's reissued here in Psalm 95 in David's time, but it's It's needed in every generation. We could say this is a a warning reissued every day. And that's why Psalm 95 says, Today, if you heard, if you've seen, don't harden your heart. Don't be like them. Today, do you hear his voice? Have you seen his work? Oh, I know they saw his work in a different way. I mean, they saw the manna that God provided every morning. They saw quail come down from the sky. Here's food to eat in the desert. They saw the water from the rock. They saw the 
the pillar of fire at night. They saw Sinai shake. They saw the glory of the Lord go into the tent of meeting or into the tabernacle. They saw so much. And and yet we haven't seen that, but we have seen it in his word. You hear it even now, even if you hadn't heard anything before. You've heard and seen of his glory in creation. He's written, written a law on your heart so that we're without excuse. You have heard his voice. You have seen his work. But there are some who have ears but don't hear. They don't really hear. This is all of us before God intervenes, before he gives us new eyes to see. Like idols, Psalm 115 says, those who make idols become like them. And here's what idols are like. They have eyes, because the guy who made them said, yeah, I'll put some eyes right there. But they don't see. They have ears, because the craftsman made them. Put them right there. But they don't hear legs, but they don't walk arms, but they can't move at all. Do you hear? Maybe today for the first time, you hear his voice. Maybe this is so literal for you. Today, if you hear his voice, and you think, yes. Maybe you hear something of his holiness. Maybe you hear something about universal sin and sin in your own heart and life. Maybe you see something here in his word about his grace and his ways or his coming judgment that that just puts it within you to flee from the wrath to come. If you hear him, if you see and know his work, then believe and trust and cling. And I'll come back to that in just a minute here. But if you have heard his voice and you've come to believe and trust and cling to him, then then Psalm 95 is saying to you, keep on. You must keep on. Keep hearing. Don't harden your heart. Don't put God to the test. Don't doubt like they doubted. Oh, I know it's so easy to think that if you were back there in the wilderness seeing all that great stuff, all those fireworks from heaven, you would have done differently. If you'd passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, you would have got the other side. If you'd seen Sinai shake, you wouldn't have built a golden calf to worship. But you know, in some ways, we've seen so much more. We don't have any less responsibility than they did. We have more. God has only promised more since then. He's only shown more since then. He's only done more since then. He doesn't have to prove himself to you or to me, and yet he's proven himself faithful and good and in control time and time again. Friend, be careful. On the one hand, it's right to be honest with the Lord about your complaint, your doubt in the midst of a trial. On the other hand, know that these are This is shaky ground. These are choppy waters. This is a road that has often led to unbelief, perishing in the wilderness, not being in his rest. So know his work and keep acting upon his work and believing in it. Don't go astray in your heart, like verse 10 says. Know his ways and know more of his ways. Read his ways. Rehearse his stories in this great book. See new things. We should be a people longing to see. We should be praying all the time. Lord, open my eyes that I might see your law, like Psalm 119 Praise over and over again. And guess what? The more we see, the more we know, the more it leads to worship. Back to the beginning of Psalm 96, or 95. Worship. That's the place of rest. It's a place of his presence. Now, rather quickly, we've got to go to the New Testament. A third point in your outline here is this. It's not in Psalm 95. It's a renewed, deeper invitation and warning. Remember, Psalm 95 was invitation and warning. Psalm 
95 is quoted in Hebrews 3 and 4 extensively. This renewed, deeper invitation and warning is this. Jesus is the rest of the story. Paul Harvey made a living on the radio telling us the rest of the story. Anyone younger than me just said, what's a radio and who the heck is Paul Harvey? It's this guy. He told really long-winded stories, uh, in my opinion. But eventually you get to this point and you say something about the rest of the story. It would be this surprise, this hook, this thing you didn't see coming. Oh, that's the part to listen for. That's good. Well, the rest of the Psalm 95 story is in Hebrews 3 and 4. And of course, I mean a pun there because Psalm 95 ended with the theme of rest. And that's what Hebrews 3 and 4 talk about. Hebrews 3 and 4, quoting Psalm 95, basically make up a sermon. So turn to Hebrews 3, and let's read some of this together, and I'll just throw in some comments in between reading this big long part of quoting the Old Testament. The quote starts in verse 7. All the way to verse 11, it's just quoting the second half of Psalm 95. So I won't read it. So the text has just been read, let's pretend, in this sermon, and now here's the exposition. Here's the teaching. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Wasn't it all those who were led out of Egypt? Those who saw all the signs? Those who witnessed all the miracles? Wasn't it them? And paraphrasing, doesn't it go on to say right here, Their bodies fell in the wilderness. They died there just like God swore would happen. Verse 19, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The key here was belief all along. The key here was that they didn't didn't trust. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us, just to them. They had good news. God revealed himself there, just as he has to us. But the message they heard didn't benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, I swore on my wrath, they shall not Enter my rest. We get to do what they didn't get to do. How? Well, then it goes on. Look at verse 3, the second half. You get a lot of rest here. Bear with me. This gets thick. Listen. Although his works, God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. Rest number one. God rested before he started making things. And then, verse 4, it talks about the seventh day of creation where God rested. A second rest. And then he says, verse 7, he now appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterwards. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. In other words, David, many, many years after the Joshua rest, the land rest, the promise to enter that rest they missed out on, David's time is saying, You can still enter his rest. And David's saying that from the land? They're in the land. They're in the rest. What do you mean? There's still another rest? Yep, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Oh, no, now the Sabbath. Sabbath means rest. So now you've got another rest going on here. Here it's referring to that, that fourth commandment of the ten, that you keep Saturday is Sabbath. You rest in him. No work on the Sabbath. 
So now there's even more of a rest? So it says in verse 9, yes, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God still today. Oh, you mean we should take Saturday off, right? Oh, we should not work on Sunday. No washing the car on Sunday? That's not what he's talking about. He says, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We rest in Jesus. Jesus is that last rest. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Shabbat, Sabbath, rest. So we rest in him. We can rest in him because of his work. He came saying, I must be about my father's work. He kept saying it, kept saying it, and then he died in the cross. And his last words were, it is finished. He finished the work. He worked on our behalf. He is our righteousness. He took the payment of sin for us. And to receive that, we don't work for it, but we rest. We believe. We don't strive. That's the story of rest. That's the rest of the story. Jesus is our rest. So we know more. We've seen more. He's shown us more. He's done more. And there's more responsibility, Christian, to keep seeing and keep hearing and keep believing, keep resting, keep trusting, keep worshiping. Take care, brothers. Exhort one another while it's still today. Strive to enter into God's rest. Yes, we rest in him, but it says strive. Oh, we'll know at the end that it's his work and he's done it. He's kept us if we're his. It's not that anyone can lose their salvation, but there's a real responsibility here in Hebrews and elsewhere for Christians who believe to keep believing and those who give up prove they never really did, despite what they said, despite what they, what they think. Keep seeing. Keep hearing. Come. Fight hardness of heart. Don't doubt him. Don't grumble against him. He's the Lord. There's none besides him.